Thank you so much for being here. If you're in our overflow room, we want to welcome you as well. Those of you who are on Facebook Live, thank you for being here as well. So in February of 2020, a man named Andrew Waltz announced his candidacy uh, for the uh, Congressional District of Rhode Island's 1st District. Uh, Mr. Andrew Waltz uh, announced that he was running as a Republican, uh, and he touted his business experience and his proven track record of leadership. And according to his Twitter page, he would advocate for lower taxes, uh, for better access to higher education, and as well for a worker visa program. He seemed to be a very formidable candidate for Congress. Uh, he even received the coveted blue check mark from Twitter indicating that this was the real account of the very real Andrew Waltz Republican candidate for Congress. The only problem was Andrew Waltz himself was not a real person. He was actually the creation of this guy, a 17-year-old high school student from upstate New York who was bored over the Christmas holidays and decided to create a candidate for Congress from Rhode Island's 1st District. He took about 20 minutes to design the webpage for this candidate for Congress, about five minutes to create the Twitter account. He then sent to Twitter uh, a question asking for verification for the Twitter account. He filled out a short survey, and pretty soon he received the coveted blue check mark, verifying that his creation was, in fact, the real candidate for Congress. Of course, pretty soon they discovered it was all a sham. They not only took away the blue check mark, verifying that he was real, they also took away the Twitter account itself. So we are continuing our series called Verified, and if you've been here with us, you know that we're talking about how in our culture, in our country today, that most people identify as Christian, they take the label Christian, but they're not true followers of Christ. Uh, for them, it's just a label. For them, it's part of their tradition. For them, it's part of their heritage. For them, it's, it's a cultural expectation but they're not verified true followers of Christ. And so for this series, we're using as our guide uh, the book of 1 John, which is found in the New Testament. If you've got your Bible with you and you want to turn there, 1 John's found right after 2 Peter. It's towards the end uh, of the New Testament. And 1 John uh, was written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John was a close companion of Jesus uh, he wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he wrote the book of Revelation. Later in his life, John became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And he wrote this letter we call 1st John to several small congregations around Ephesus. And he wrote this because a heresy known as Gnosticism had invaded those churches. A Gnosticism uh, comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And Gnostics believed that they had acquired a special, deeper knowledge about God and about spiritual things in general. Gnostics said the way of salvation is through this enlightenment where you discover these special hidden truths about God. There were a lot of different brands of Gnosticism. 
Uh, they borrowed on teachings from Judaism. They borrowed on Greek philosophy, especially uh, the teachings of Plato. Uh, however, most Gnostics said that the material world is evil and the spiritual world is good. And they took the physical and the spiritual and they divided them and they said one could follow God spiritually while physically doing whatever one wanted to do. That the physical did not affect the spiritual. John wrote to those congregations around Ephesus because of this heresy of Gnosticism. The problem for those churches and those Christians in those churches was that Gnostics used a Christian label and they used a lot of Christian lingo. Uh, they seemed to be Christian in so many ways. They, they would even quote scripture. They would, they would use the same terms as Christians. And yet John identified them at the end of the day as being very lost. Although they had the label Christian, they were not verified followers of Christ. So if you were here with us the first week, we talked about the test that John uses to determine if someone's truly a follower of Christ. And he basically gave three criteria. Uh, the first is right beliefs. The second is right actions. And the third is right love. In John chapter 2, he hits on all of these. However, today we're going to talk about the second one. Right actions or doing the right things. So again, if you've got your Bible with you, open to John chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 3. Here's what John wrote. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So right here in this paragraph, John gets just to the heart of the issue. Uh, you can imagine someone coming to John and saying something like, Hey, John, you were with Jesus. You were a close companion of Jesus. For three years, you heard Jesus teach. So, John, I've got a question for you. I'm wondering, how can I know that I'm truly a follower of Christ? John, how can I know that my faith is a verified faith? Or, John, let me ask it this way. John, how can I know that truly I have come to know him? And John says, okay, you want to know? Here's how you know. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Okay, John, I think that's clear. I think I get that. But maybe could you help me just to find it a little bit further? I mean, what, what exactly does that look like, John? Okay, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Okay, John, so I, I think I get it here. Sounds like what you're saying is if someone is truly a follower of Christ, then they will follow the commands of Christ. And if they say, I am a follower of Christ, but I 
do not do what he commands, then I'm a liar and the truth is not in me. But John, I'm, I'm just not 100% clear yet. You know, may, maybe you can just put a, a little more meat on the bones for me. Can you just flesh it out a little bit more? Fine. If anyone obeys his word, the love for God is truly made complete in them. Okay, I think I get it, John. You're saying obey his commands. You're saying if I don't obey his commands, then I'm a liar. And then you're saying if I obey his words, then the love of God is truly complete in me. But John, I just, I just need to make sure here. Can you just define it a little bit further? Make it absolutely clear because this is the biggest issue. This is the biggest question that I will ever ask in life is whether or not I'm truly a follower of Christ. So John, give me clarity here. Okay, fine. You want clarity? This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Okay, John, I think I get it. Obey his commands. If I claim that I'm in him and I disobey his commands, then I'm not really a follower of Christ. That if I obey his words, the love of God is in me. And just to be clear, if I'm in him, then I will live as Jesus did. Okay, let me stop here. Make sure you're paying attention I need to ask you a question. I need a little audience participation here. How many of you in here would say that in your life, in your moral actions, that you live as Jesus did 100% of the time? Anyone? Anyone? If you raise your hand, you're coming up here to preach. You know that, don't you? Yeah, none of us. None of us fit this criteria. I mean, all of us in here would look at this and go, ah, I don't qualify. I mean, keep his commands. Maybe a lot of the time I do, but not always. I know him, but do not do what he commands. Yeah, I've done that. I've said, hey, I'm a follower of Christ, but then I've done things that do not go along with his commands. I guess I'm a liar. I mean, if I, I've not always obeyed his word, so is the love of God truly not made complete? And certainly, when you look at my life and the life of Jesus... There's a gap there. Morally speaking, I've not lived like Jesus. So the first issue with this passage is we don't qualify. All of us in here are big fakes. None of us have a verified faith according to this. That's issue number one. Issue number two is this. In the previous chapter, John wrote this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Wait, wait, wait a second, John. Here you're saying, if I say I have no sin, then I'm, I'm lying. The truth is not in me. But then you said, if we sin, then we're not truly a follower of Christ. John, which is it? I got to know what's going on here. Here's what we have to remember. John wrote this letter for a very specific reason. This heresy called Gnosticism had invaded the churches. And Gnostics taught two things. One, that salvation is attained through this special knowledge, through discovering these hidden sayings of Jesus, and through this knowledge becoming a follower of Christ, and it was all intellectual. Didn't matter how you lived. It was this mystical discovery of the mind. 
That's how you became a follower of Christ. The other thing that they said was, the physical and the spiritual are completely separate. So that I can live however I want to live, morally, physically, and spiritually, I can claim to be without sin. Let me give you just an idea of what Gnosticism looked like. At this point, when John wrote this letter, Gnosticism was just in its embryonic stage. It was brand new. However, over the decades, Gnosticism continued to develop, and there even became these Gnostic Gospels um, that were written and, and scattered throughout the churches. If you've ever read the Da Vinci Code, you've read about the Gnostic Gospels, um, the Gospel of Thomas is one. There's the Gospel of Philip, um, the Gospel of Mary. Uh, there's one called the Gospel of Truth. They were all written decades after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written. They were assigned to people who were close to Jesus, although they were not written by those individuals. And they all taught these, these mystical, sort of ethereal teachings of how you can come to know God. The Gospel of Thomas is a great example. Look at the prologue of the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, it, it starts this way. These are the hidden sayings that the living Jesus spoke and Didymus, Judas, Thomas wrote down. So Thomas is the Aramaic name for twin. Didymus is the Greek name for twin. So in the Gospels, you see he was sometimes called Thomas, sometimes called Didymus. Uh, whoever wrote this Gnostic gospel, probably in the second century A.D., gave him a third name, Judas. That's not in the Bible. They just decided he needed three names. The key here is this Gnostic gospel starts with, these are the hidden sayings. In other words, Jesus made these statements that only certain people can understand. And if you discover and understand these hidden sayings, then you'll achieve salvation. In fact, the very first saying says exactly that. Saying one, true meaning. And he, Jesus said, whoever discovers the meaning of these sayings won't taste death. In other words, salvation is attained not through a changed life, not through a changed heart, but through intellectually discovering the meanings of the sayings of Jesus. If you discover those, then you won't taste death. Again, this is a Gnostic gospel. This is not the Bible. Understand that. This is something that came much later. So what are these hidden sayings? What are these mysterious um, hidden sayings that we can try to understand to get eternal life according to the Gnostics? Gnostics. Look at saying three, and all of them are like this. Saying three, this is supposedly what Jesus said. Jesus said, if your leaders tell you, look, the kingdom is in heaven, then the birds of heaven will precede you. If they tell you it's in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is within you and outside of you. When you know yourselves, then you'll be known and you'll realize that you're the children of the living Father. But if you don't know yourselves, then you live in poverty and you are the poverty. I have no idea what this means. To which the Gnostic would say, of course, you're not enlightened. You haven't discovered the hidden meaning. And they would sit down and they would debate a passage like this and say, what is the secret hidden meaning that Jesus is getting at here? 
like a bunch of college freshmen after a philosophy class sitting around and over coffee debating these various philosophical teachings and what do you think this means and what do you think this means and it was all very individualistic and very ethereal and very mystical and you could assign whatever meaning you wanted to assign to it and that was fine it's your world whatever you think is best you just go ahead and do it and so I could read a passage like this and I could say You know, I think what Jesus was saying here was, you know, I need to leave my wife and marry the cute intern who's just come to our office. And and that's fine because it's all about me and it's all about, about me being happy. And that's what the fish means and the birds mean. And yeah, that's what I say it means. And then you could take it and you could say, well, I think it means this. And you could, you know, go and live however you want to live. So the Gnostics basically said, It's all about this intellectual understanding that comes from these hidden meanings. And so John wrote his letter to churches to address these two heresies of the Gnostics. One was the Gnostics said, I have no sin because spiritually I'm not a sinner. Spiritually, I have not broken any laws, even though physically I'm doing all these awful things. So John said, look, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. The second thing Gnostics said was, hey, it is through this intellectual exercise that I'm able to achieve salvation. And John here in the second chapter says, no, no, no. You've got to keep his commands. It's about a changed life. It's about walking in your life as Jesus walked, not just discovering these hidden meanings. And so in chapter 2, skip down to verse 15. John defines a little further what that means, what it looks like to follow Christ in the way that we live. Here's what he wrote in verse 15. He said, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So John starts this section by saying, look, do not love the world or anything in the world. And by that, he does not mean God's creation. He does not mean do not love nature. What he means is do not love the philosophy and the human-centered teachings of the world that are in direct contrast to God. And he identifies three things that are part of the world's philosophy. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. John here says all of these things come from the world. And all of these things come from a human need that is within each of us. Each of these we can trace to a a, a human need in our life. Lust of the flesh comes from the desire that we have for pleasure or the need to feel good. The lust of the eyes comes from the desire for possessions or the need for good things. The third, the pride of life, comes from our desire for a good position or the need to be important. Every sin you have ever committed, 
every sin I have ever committed traces its root to one of these three sins. It traces its root to one or more of these sins. The big ones are easy to identify. Lust of the flesh. So sexual sin there. The desire to fulfill uh, the desires of the flesh. That one's obvious. Lust of the eyes, so stealing, you know, in order to get good things, comes from the need for good things or the lust of the eyes. The pride of life, the need to be important, lying or cheating or some other way uh, to appear important in front of others. All of the sins that we have ever committed in life come from one or more of these three areas, trying to meet these needs in some way. I sat down this week, and as I was going through this and studying this, I tried to think of any sin I have ever committed that could not be traced to one of these three areas. I couldn't think of one. If you think of one, email me. Just make sure that in the email you're not prideful that you thought of something that I didn't think of because that's going to trace right back to this last one here. Every sin, think of every time you've committed a sin, you can trace it to one of these three areas. Uh, So if these are basic human needs that all of us have, and we're all just trying to meet these needs, then why are they sins? Why are these things morally wrong? They're not necessarily sins. It's not necessarily wrong to try to feel good or to get good things or the need to be important, to be successful in life. However, they become wrong when they drive a wedge between us and God. When we elevate these desires above our relationship with God. Let's look at a great example. Put a finger there. Turn back to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, we read about the temptation of Jesus This comes on the heels of the baptism of Jesus. It's right at the beginning of his public ministry. And in Matthew 4, we read about Jesus going into the wilderness, into this barren land, this rocky terrain. And there he faces uh, temptation, each of these temptations. Look at Matthew 4. Here's what we read. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so temptation number one of Jesus was the lust of the flesh, the need to feel good. So here's the question. Was it wrong for Jesus to eat bread? Was it wrong for Jesus to meet this need to feel good by eating bread? Of course not. Jesus ate bread on multiple occasions. The eating of the bread was not a sin. It was eating of the bread that was outside of the will of God when it came as an offer from Satan. Phrase it this way. Eating bread was not a sin. It was the timing and the place wasn't right. A a great modern example for us would be sexual sin. God created sex. 
Sex is a good thing when the timing and the place is right. In the context of marriage, God says this is good and this is wonderful. Outside of that, it drives a wedge between us and God. So temptation number one, lust of the flesh or the need to feel good. Here was the second temptation of Jesus. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So the second second temptation was the pride of life or the need to be important. And so Satan comes to Jesus and he takes him to the highest point of the temple and he says, do this. Throw yourself off the temple. The angels will catch you and they will gently lower you to the streets below like a feather falling to the ground. And everyone in Jerusalem will see this happen and they will look and they will say, surely he's exactly who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah. Way to go, Jesus. The angels caught you. You really are who you say you are. You really are someone important. Now, was it wrong for Jesus to do, to do a miracle? Was it even, even wrong for Jesus to do a miracle that proved that he was the Son of God? Of course not. He did that plenty of times. Here, though, it was an offer of Satan. The time was not right, and it would have driven a wedge between him and God. It wasn't wrong to meet this need. It was here wrong to meet the need because the time wasn't right. Here's the third temptation of Jesus. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So temptation number three. The lust of the eyes, the need for good things. Was it wrong for Jesus to possess good things? No, throughout his life, he had good things because of his influence, because of his popularity. He was invited into homes where he ate wonderful meals, where he was given good things. It wasn't wrong to have good things. However, very clearly here, it was wrong because Satan said, you can have everything the world has to offer. All you have to do is give up your soul. Give me your soul and you can have all of this. And Jesus resisted that temptation. Now, all of us in this room, your temptation may not be as dramatic as this, where Satan takes you to a high point and offers you these things. However, every one of us face these exact same temptations in life. Let's go back to our list. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Is it wrong to feel good? Is it wrong to give in to pleasure, and want to feel good? Of course not. Uh, When I get into my car in the summer, the first thing I do is I hit the button for air conditioning. I'm not going to ride around in a hot car. I'm not going to suffer for no reason. when um, When I pull a muscle, when I get hurt, I have no problem taking Advil. I don't want to be in pain for no reason. When I'm hungry, it's okay to eat. It's not meeting the need 
to feel good that is necessarily it's a uh, sin. When does it become a sin? When does it become the lust of the flesh? When we elevate that need above following God. When we are willing to violate what God clearly says in His Word because we believe that violating that rule, that law, that command will make us feel good. That's when it becomes a sin. Or when we say, my comfort is more important than my relationship with God. So I refuse to do anything that makes me uncomfortable, even if I believe that God's calling me to do that. If God is calling me to serve, but I don't want to do that because I like where I am right now. I like my comfort. That's when the lust of the flesh becomes a sin. Secondly, the lust of the eyes. Is it wrong to have good things? Of course not. Last night, I slept in a bed that has a mattress and box springs. I'd say that's a good thing. You know, I enjoy getting a good night's sleep, and I purchased the bed that would help me get a good night's sleep. This morning when I got up, I drove in a car to come here. I did not walk here. You know, I put on clothes that are not just threadbare. I, I put on clothes that are decent clothes. Possessing good things is not wrong. However, it bleeds over into the lust of the eyes when it drives a wedge between us and God. When we are willing to violate the commands of God in order to get these good things. When those good things become our idol. When we worship those good things. When our hearts are set on those good things in life. Then it becomes the lust of the eyes. Now, the last one, the pride of life. The need to be important. Is it wrong to be successful in life? Is it wrong to do your best, to try to achieve, to work hard? None of those things are wrong. However, it becomes the pride of life when our self-esteem is based upon who we are in life, how we are identified by others, what others think about us, whether or not we made the team or didn't make the team, whether or not we were admitted into the club or not into the club. When we give in to those things, then it becomes the pride of life. And here's the problem. When we give in to those temptations, we end up meeting our physical needs, but we're left empty spiritually. Now, when we give in to that temptation, we get lots of stuff, but our souls are empty inside. We might have success, but we're missing true satisfaction in life. And we might get all of these things, but still have a hole in our soul. Now, if you're above a certain age, and I don't know exactly what that age is, but if you're above a certain age, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you don't need me to tell you this, and you don't need to read the Bible to understand this, because you've experienced enough of life to know what it's like to pursue everything the world has to offer and to get it and then still be feeling empty inside. You, you've chased after that shiny new toy, and you finally got it, and you thought, this is it, this is it, and then you go, wait a second, this isn't it, still feel empty. You, you've sought to meet those physical needs and you've burned with passion and then you meet that need and then you go, ah, something's not right. Something still feels empty inside. You've achieved success. You've gotten it all. 
And then you said, yeah, but it's just not what I thought it would be. It's like the guy who said he spent his entire life climbing the corporate ladder to finally get to the top and realize that the ladder was leaning against the wrong building. That he had done all of this work. And yet at the end of the day, it's all for nothing. It still left him empty inside. So here's the question. We know we need to meet these needs. These are natural human needs. How do we fight the temptation to let these needs drive a wedge between us and God? Here's the key. John in this passage says it's not wrong to meet these needs. But what you need to do is to pursue these, meeting these needs in a way that will last for eternity. Here's what John wrote. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. In other words, seek to meet these human needs, but do it in a way that really matters. Do it in a way that actually counts in life. Again, let's go back to our list. The lust of the flesh comes from this human need to want to feel good. And here's what Scripture says. Scripture says that the greatest pleasure that you can find in life is found in Jesus. Not in these other things. In meeting these fleshly needs, the greatest pleasure that you can find in life is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything else will pass away. Everything else is like getting the cupcake with all the icing on top and you get the sugar high and it it lasts for a moment, but then you crash and you feel worse than before you ate the cupcake. The gospel tells us that the greatest pleasure we can find in life is through Jesus Christ. The second one, the lust of the eyes. Trying to get good things. We all want good things in life, but we have to keep it in perspective. And here's the perspective that the The gospel tells us that Jesus is my greatest possession. We know this is true in death. Nothing plus Jesus in death equals everything. In death, everything without Jesus equals nothing. The guy who has gained the entire world but dies without Jesus dies with nothing. The poor beggar who doesn't have a penny to his name, but dies with Jesus, has it all. We know that's true in death, but it's true in life as well. We get all this stuff, but it it becomes just one more thing. We gain all these things, but they end up owning us rather than us owning them. We get all these nice things, and then we go, "Ah, I don't know, it's just not doing it anymore. The greatest possession that we can have in life is Jesus. The last thing, the pride of life. We all want to be important. We all want to to be recognized. We all want to know that we are loved by others. Here's what the gospel tells us. In Jesus, the greatest identity that you have is as a child of the King. It's more important than anything else. So you're great at sports. That's great. One day it will fade away. So you're accepted by others. You're very popular. That's great. One day it will fade away. You're very good looking. People are naturally drawn to you. Let me tell you, sadly, one day it will fade away. So you've achieved a lot of success. You're at the pinnacle of your career. That is great. 
one day it will fade away. What will not fade away is that you are a child of the King and that in Christ Jesus you are loved incredibly by the Father. And in life and in death, that will never change.